0: Vice.com by Josiah M. Hesse and Josiah Hesse, uh, sexual abuse. Billy Graham's grandson says Protestants abuse kids just like Catholics. Bazile Bostid Vigian is shining a spotlight on the sexual abuse of children in Protestant churches, a scandal he says may be larger than that of the Catholic Church. August 25th, 2017, 4 a.m. Basile Bos Tichvigian walks a fine line. On one side, he's the ultimate evangelical insider. His grandfather was the famed evangelical preacher, Billy Graham, who exerted immense influence over American politics, culture, and theology. Tichvichian has followed in the family business, teaching law at Liberty University, the Christian College of famed Baptist pastor, Jerry Falwell. On the other side, he's one of the most articulate critics of evangelical institutions at times sounding like a new atheist prophet alongside Richard Dawkins or Bill Maher. He says that churches can be ideal environments for sexual predators who target children and that traditions of shame, male power structures, and public relations myopia help keep abusers in positions of power and the abused silent. Tijvijian sees it as his Christian duty to to root out abuse in the church and to build defenses against it. His organization, Grace, godly response to abuse in the Christian environment, has been hired to investigate high-profile Christian institutions like Bob Jones University and New Tribes Mission. Grace revealed frightening levels of sexual abuse and, as he told me during our interview, the common, the common threat of institutional protection at the expense of the individual. Tijvijian has even had to deal with sex scandals in his own family. In 2015, it was revealed that Boss's brother, Tullian Tichvichian, had committed what the Grace Board described as a gross misuse of power in his extramarital relations with adult members of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Over the years, Boss has come to recognize that many churches do not have policies in place to deal with accusations of abuse. And too often, they blame the victims for seducing their abuser. In an attempt to combat this, Tejvijian recently co-authored the Child Safeguarding Policy Guide for Churches and Ministries, attempting to help church leaders address difficult questions about predators in their communities and how to avoid further harming someone who has already been traumatized. We recently spoke with the grandson of America's pastor about why some churches protect predators, how sexual ignorance leads to abuse, and where Jesus stood on child abuse. Vice. How big of a problem is child sexual abuse for Protestant churches? Basile Boston Vision. It's hard to answer that with any degree of certainty because the research out there is pretty... Minimal. If you accept the general statistic that one in four women and one in six men will have been sexually victimized before they turn 18, then you have to acknowledge that those same people are inside of our churches and faith communities. So if you had 100 men and 100 women in your church, 20.5% of your church would be survivors of child sexual abuse. How does the issue of sexual predators within Protestant churches compare with the massive scandal the Catholic Church has endured? A few years ago, data was gathered from some of the top insurance providers for Protestant churches. It was found that they received 260 reports a year of minors being sexually abused by church leaders or church members. Similarly, the John Jay report on the Catholic Church came up with 228 credible accusations by priests. Again, sexual abuse is one of the most underreported criminal offenses. But if you just look at these numbers, they tell us that more children are being abused within Protestant churches than in the Catholic Church. One aspect of that is that they are way more Protestants in Protestant churches than they are Catholics, but for me, it's important to share that statistic when speaking with Protestant audiences so so that they stop pointing their fingers at the Catholic church and engage more with their own church. I have a friend who is a pastor in a Presbyterian church, and when she started at a new church, she preached six or seven sermons about abuse. She told me that since then, I've had 10 women approach me and tell me that they had been sexually abused as children, and that I was the very first person they ever told, and this is a small church. I think the reason they approached her was that in preaching about it from the pulpit, she created a safe space for them to talk about it. It's a great example about how most of our churches aren't creating safe spaces. Too often, victims are afraid to say anything Because they're afraid of how people will respond. How do the church leaders typically respond? It's such a spectrum. There are some that respond very well. The younger generation of pastors seem to get this issue more and are willing to talk about it. But we unfortunately do have a lot of pastors who don't think it happens and prefer to embrace a false narrative that makes them more comfortable. It's common to see a desire to protect the institution at the expense of the individual. Yet the gospel that Christians proclaim with their lips is all about a God who sacrifices God's self in order to save others. But when it comes to abuse, we often do the opposite. So... We have to educate our church leaders about this issue so we can try and eliminate victim blaming when disclosures are made. Telling the victim it was their fault because of how they were dressed or were acting or forcing them to forgive the offender just compounds the shame they are already going through shame is a big issue with male victims of sexual abuse they're often the most silent of survivors inside the church i've had male survivors tell me they didn't want anyone in the church to know because they thought that they would be labeled a future offender and everyone would keep their kids away or they would be accused of being gay how are women impacted by the purity culture and gender roles of evangelicals when it comes to this issue certain pockets of christianity promote a culture that keeps women very ignorant about these issues it's sort of a perfect storm you have an ignorance about anything concerning sex you have a view that men are in charge and have a higher degree of value and you have a leadership structure that gives authority often to one person often the girl doesn't realize what she's experiencing is abuse until much later because she's ignorant of sex and that ignorance is exploited by people who want to abuse children. Most descendants of famous preachers aggressively defend their status and legacy, but you, the grandson of Billy Graham, ended up doing advocacy on behalf of a taboo topic. How does that happen? I did have a family member who suffered abuse. But I didn't really begin digging deep into this issue until I was a prosecutor. It was during that time that I encountered these cases closely. It's one thing to read about these cases in a newspaper as another to sit in a room with a girl who's been sexually victimized by her father's best friend or by by her father. Or to sit in a room with parents who just learned that their child had been sexually abused by another family member. It's heart wrenching and you begin to understand the lifelong impact that it has on victims and those in their lives. The few cases that I the few cases that I had that involved a faith community, I saw the faith community respond to it in a terrible way. More often than not, if the pastor or member of the church came to court to speak on behalf of somebody, it was on behalf of the perpetrator, not the victim. And I remember thinking, there's something not right about this. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is always on the side of the marginalized, the wounded, those who've been cast out. But that wasn't what I was seeing in the courtroom or churches. In Jesus' time during the Roman Empire, children were valued only slightly above slaves and abuse was rampant. And here Jesus comes saying, anybody who hurts a child should have a stone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. But in today's church, children are often second-class citizens. How do church leaders respond when you approach them about this issue? It's mixed. Some fear it will stain their institutional reputation or personal reputation if they did uncover a situation and it got out. Often that's in the guise G U I S E of something more pious like, we don't want this to stain the reputation of Jesus, so we have to take care of it eternally. Internally, sometimes people argue that sexual abuse is everywhere. So why pick on the church? Of course, it is everywhere. My focus is on the church because that's where I grew up. That's where I've seen some of the horrors, the horrors. That's where I've encountered survivors who in tears tell me that they can't pray to God because the man who abused them was praying while when he abused them. The (sighs) woo. Whew, um I felt like I just got punched in the chest, the stomach and the eyes all in one punch. I can't even call him a man. The demon who abused them was pre- was praying wild. He abused them, or reading scripture, he was raping them. Should there be any kind of support for potential abusers seeking help before they harm anyone? We've intentionally focused on victims because I found that the perpetrators are often the ones with the most support from the church. Having said that, there are people who are earnestly struggling with this issue and are deathly afraid of telling anyone about it because of how they respond. There should be resources for those who haven't acted on those impulses to come forward and get help, but it's tricky because you see a lot of lying, manipulation, and narcissism with abusers. It's difficult to know if they're telling the truth when they say they've never acted on their impulses. How has this line of work impacted you as a parent and as someone who teaches at one of the largest Christian institutions in the U.S.? You don't want to be paranoid and lock your kids in a room. But we also don't let our kids do sleepovers because I've met with too many victims who are victimized by a a friend's parent at a sleepover. I don't tell other parents not to do that, but it's our policy. Also, we talk about this issue a lot with our children. In many ways, it's been good for them and hopefully it will shape them when they become parents. The years of doing this line of work has given me a pretty low view of the church. It has also given me a much higher view of Jesus, and that's what allows me to go another day and keep my faith. When you grow up as an evangelical Christian, you have this nice, neat view of God in the world, and when you start doing this work, that all gets shattered. Because how do you answer when someone asks, asks you, where was God when my dad was coming into my room every night and molesting me was watching why didn't he stop him those are questions i don't have answers to all i can do is grieve with them and maybe get a little angry but studying who jesus was while he lived on this earth has given me a greater appreciation for who he was in relation to this issue there was no greater defender of children than jesus uh, editor's note, an earlier version of this article stated that Thule and Tidjvichian was at one time a member of the Grace Board. This was incorrect. This article has been updated. Follow Josiah Hesse on Twitter. Um, the hurt in my voice says everything that you know I'm feeling. This is Medium.com. Jonathan Poletti, July 14, 2019. Did Christians edit out Jesus speaking on child sex abuse? Let's look at the evidence. When I think of Christianity, for some reason, I'm not thinking of warnings against the sexual abuse of children. Of course, it would be understood as bad, but a particularly severe theological problem, a special concern of God, not so much. I was surprised to find a 2017 scholarly paper by Lauren Zelleck, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1-4, and the exposure and sexual abuse of children in the Roman world, suggesting that Jesus spoke about it in the harshest terms. Why had I not heard this before? Matthew chapter 18, verse 6 is usually translated like this: "If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it will be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea." It is interpreted to not be about children at all. These people who stumble are adults. That's the usual. These people who stumble are adults. That's the usual approach. But Zelek says this translation is more accurate. Whoever scandalizes one of these little ones who believe in me. The Greek word scandalizo is rare in biblical literature but doesn't mean stumble. In the Psalms of Solomon is a usage Restrain me, O God from sexual sin and from every evil woman who scandalizes the foolish. So it appears Scandalizo has a sexual reference. And Matthew chapter 18, verse 6 would be about a sexual offense involving children. The version the Christian tradition gives us is different in many ways. The focus is on the stumbling of the child as if the problem begins when the child does something bad. Until then, no blame attaches. In Zalek's reading, Jesus speaks directly to the abuser in the moment of abuse. Shifting focus on the victims' actions, as Alex says, mitigates the frightful pronouncements directed against the perpetrator. I was left with the sinking feeling that the church had made these changes to the words of Jesus for a reason. That Jesus denounced the sexual abuse of children has been suggested before. In 1990, Will Dimon suggested the similar language in Mark chapter nine verses forty-two to forty-eight and Matthew chapter five verses twenty-seven to thirty had sexual reference. The idea was dismissed by Christian scholars. They knew what little ones meant. It didn't mean children. It meant all believers. William Loder picking up in 2005 the idea that Jesus was really talking about the sexual abuse of children works through the issue. When does little ones stop referring to real children and start referring to believers in general? Many scholars see the transition as occurring between chapter 18 verse 5 and chapter 18 verse 6. The result is that they see Matthew taking Mark chapter 9 verse 42. The warning about child abuse is now a warning about causing any believers to stumble. If then, I then had to consider this possibility. Jesus speaks to the sexually abusive children three times and each was argued away. Or it was until very recently when Bible scholars like Zellick and Deming, able to be employed at regular universities, were no longer under church controls. If you want non-sectarian Bible scholarship, you have to pay for it. Zellick's paper, though, published in a prominent journal, seems to have been little discussed. Michael F. Byrd, an Australian scholar, mentions it a few times. The eminent Scott McKnight shows, shows up in his comments. That's as much play as it's likely to get. Early Christianity pretty regularly spoke up about corrupting children. The Didach, a first or second century list of instructions to church officials, says... Thou shalt not seduce young boys with the Sometimes I have to pause when I read. Whew and sometimes I have to breathe hard and out when I read too. Whew Alright. When I say all right, that means um I can keep on reading. Then the Council of Alveria around 310 AD has a rule that men who sexually abuse boys shall not be given communion even at the end. But why did the concern shift to violating boys and narrowing of Jesus' reference to children? This might also this might owe to a cruel indifference to girls, or it might conceal a startling possibility. Even early Christianity, clerics were often homoerotically inclined. As Joss Boswell point out in Christianity, Social Tolerance, Homosexuality, a treatise by the third-century cleric John Chrysotom notes that among Christian men around him. There's some danger that womankind will become unnecessary in the future, with young men instead fulfilling all the needs women used to. But even the condemnation of the sexual use of boys falls away, leaving only a silence. Newspaper headlines are lately apt to read the sin of silence and speak of the epidemic of, The Sin of Silence and Speak of the Epidemic of Denial about sexual abuse in the evangelical church. I stared in horrid fascination at Christians facing this issue. The man's behavior caught the attention of a fellow congregant who informed Sandy Burdock, a licensed counselor who led the church's sexual abuse support group. Burdock says she warned Den Hollander's parents that the man was showing classic signs of grooming behavior. They were worried... But they also feared misreading the situation and falsely accusing an innocent student, according to Camille Moxon, Den Hollander's mom. So they turned to their closest friends, their Bible study group, for support. The overwhelming response was, you're overreacting. One family even told them that their kids could no longer play together because they didn't want to be accused next, Moxon says. Hearing this, Dolphin Landers' parents decided that unless the college student committed an aggressive sexual act, there was nothing they could do. No one knew that months earlier, he already had... Several people, including a counselor, thought there were a problem, but the Bible study group didn't, and that's the advice that parents went with, and that was months after it started. I wonder what the situation would have been had they been trained to understand that for Jesus, childhood sexual abuse was a serious problem. When the evangelical teacher Beth Moore in 2018 instigated discussion of childhood sexual abuse in churches by discussing her own, she says, Our family is sick. We need help. And she got a lot of pushback from evangelicals. Surely one guy notes she had a better sense of justice and honesty than to try to destroy a man. You can tell by the sarcasm in my voice how I feel about that statement. I think of the Christian response to disclosures of boy rapist Jerry Sandusky at Penn State Revealed in 2012. His prominence as a Christian certainly contributed to his ability to get away with it for so long. Jesus yet again was used to abuse. Sandusky regularly attended St. Paul's United Methodist Church in State College before the news broke with the allegations. He also had a sticker that reads, Be still and know that I am God, Psalm chapter 46, verse 10, attached to his garage door. Reviewing news coverage of the church's response, I'm underwhelmed. Even in comments by fellow congregants after the facts were known, you could see how Sandusky wouldn't be caught there is an avoidance of reality in an effort to discredit victim testimony. You have no idea how difficult this has been for our congregation, said one female church member who did not want to be identified. We're like a family and the allegations were stunning. I didn't want to believe them, but there was too much evidence not to. Another congregant who said she chose not to read any news coverage of the trial struggled with her own internal conflict, saying she trusted the jury had made the right decision while holding out hope that Sandusky did not really abuse the boys who testified against him. Let me translate. She hopes the boys were lying. At what point is ignoring abuse abusive? Is mistranslating Jesus' prohibitions? Ooh, this is a deep question. Is mistranslating Jesus's prohibitions facilitating abuse? I mean, let's let that be something we mull over. Is it an acknowledgment of it? I'm all over that too. We might have to mention then the willful mistranslation of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. A regular reference in Christian theology used to assert the evil of all humans. For we are all, as the prophet says, desperately wicked. Or that's how the tradition had presented it. As reinforced by the LXX, here is an accurate translation. The heart is deep above all else, and so is man, and who shall understand him? Um, The heart is deep, so who can know it? It's a question. The answer is God. He is deep enough to understand the human. Christian scholars have long noted the verse is misunderstood. Stephen Motyer says in a footnote, in fact, deep is probably a better translation than devious because the Hebrew word be simply and vividly expresses the way in which our own hearts can gang up on us in spring, surprises that leave us gasping to understand ourselves. The Jewish scholar Tzvi Novik suggests the translation, the heart is more closely kept than anything humanity who among human beings will know the heart. So yet again, we might have to wonder why a mistranslation was allowed to persist. Here's a thought. Could a climate of shame have been useful to clerics who attended to be abusers? Why should a sinful child expect to be treated well or to have boundaries and autonomy? They're damaged, evil, and judged from birth, aren't they? You can see how the abusive logic works. Back in Greece and Rome in the biblical period, the sexual abuse of children Was a regular part of life As Alex says In both cultures Sex between um, um, Okay, okay no, 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 no We are not going to use this kind of language In both cultures m- Male rapists Who targeted children Boy children And girl children Of lower societal status Was Evilly considered by them, the rape culture and rapists, the instigators of rape culture, to be legitimate. Particularly men and slave children, men and forced child prostitutes. Jesus standing up to these practices was very unusual. This is a remarkable feature of a remarkable teacher. Then he went on to hold up the child as a spiritual model. as that he went on to hold up the child as a spiritual model was a shock as corneella b horn and john w martins explains children were generally not held up as models of spiritual enlightenment in judaism and only very rarely in early christianity jesus notice of children they add did not proceed from any existing model in judaism nor did early christians who initially concentrated their ministry and missions mostly on adults Readily adopt Jesus' ministry to children or accept children as models of spiritual perfection or as model disciples. It wasn't Jews. It also wasn't Christian. It was just Jesus. <sighs> mm. <sighs> Um, I'll just read one more, then I'll be done for today. Oh God, oh man, I have no words. My my struggling with words it, it says it all. Um, October seventeenth, two thousand sixteen. Three Awful features Roman sexual morality. This time Chalice, but I'm going to put it in my own words. After that, then I'll explain other things about how I feel. Just right now, I don't have any words. Whatever else, you know. Okay, you know what? I got an idea. In the future, I'm not going to read every word of articles because they take away from what is meant. Some Christian articles I've read, they tend to be, when talking about sex, they tend to um, promote sexual purity and they call um, biblical, you know, a lack of biblical sexuality sinful. So far, that hasn't happened, but in this article, it pretty much says it all. So I will. Bits and piece this thing in my own words to be respectful to us survivors. We've all survived something. We're all survivors of someone and something. Romans did not think in terms of sexual orientation. Rather, sexuality was tied to ideas of masculinity, male domination, and the adoption of the Greek pursuit of beauty. In the Roman mind, the strong took what they wanted to take. It was socially acceptable for a strong Roman male to have intercourse with men or women alike, provided he was the aggressor. It was looked down upon to play the female receptive role in LGBTQA plus liaisons. Um, A real man dominated in the bedroom as he did on the battlefield. He would... I hate when they keep saying sex when it comes to people victimized. He would rape his slaves. There's no such thing as consent about anything about your life if you are being abused. If you're forced into enslavement. So, I'm going to read this with the most therapeutically honest language. He would rape his slaves whether they were male or female. He would visit prostitutes. He would have LGBTQI plus sex even when married, even while married. He would engage in pederasty. See below. Even rape was generally acceptable as long as he only raped people of a lower status. He was strong, muscular, and hard in both body and spirit. Society looked down on him only when he appeared weak or soft. So Romans did not think of people as being oriented toward homosexuality or heterosexuality. Rather, they understood that a respectable man would express his dominance by having sex. Um, What's the best way to say this? It would be consensual If the men and women wanted to do it, when it comes to children, it's all forced. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of the men and women were raped by these Roman males. Some of them were. So just because there's an experience going on between two adults, it's not always consensual. Some of it can be forced for some of them. And the others, it's consensual. Anything adults do with children in terms of... That... You know, what's the best way to put it? Anything sexual that an adult does to a kid... All rape. All rape. Okay. When I say okay, I'm meaning I'm moving on to the next thing. I'm not validating any of these forms of wickedness at all. Roman sexuality accepted pedophilia. The pursuit of beauty and the obsession with the masculine ideal led to the widespread practice of pederasty. Okay, it's not a sexual relationship. Sometimes I tell you up front what is being said because people are ignorant. There's no such thing as a sexual relationship between an adult and a kid. That's just logical, don't you think? It's when an adult man raped an adolescent boy. This had been a common feature of the Greek world. It was adapted by the Romans who saw it as a natural expression of male privilege and, do- and domination. A Roman man would direct his sexual attention toward a slave boy, or at times, even a freeborn child, and would continue to do so until the boy reached puberty. Oh, God. I, oh, I, if I could go back in time and kill all the Roman males who did that, I absolutely would. I would show them, I'm the real aggressor up in here. I don't want any of you breathing. I'll come back with an Uzi... Packs of Uzis and have fun blasting all y'all. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny, that's how I really feel. It's hard not to have murderous feelings toward rapists. These relationships were seen as an acceptable and even idealized form of. I'm not going to call that love. I'm not calling that love. You know what i call that? Pure evil. Stop calling it love. Kind of stop that. Just stop calling it love. I don't like... Uh, I can write better than this. No offense to this dude, but... I can write language that upholds up survivors like us. Like me. Express self in poem, story, and song. No, no, no. There's no such thing as... Poetry, stories, and songs when you are torturing a soul. In the Roman world, a man's wife was often seen as beneath him and less than him, but a demonic rape culture, as I call it, with, you know, no, but a demonic rape culture, as I call it, when it comes to boys, some of the men that they raped and some of the other men that they had consensual sex with represented a... No, stop calling it higher form of intellectual love and engagement. No, no, no. Engagement, it, wrong word. Intellectual love, wrong word. Higher forms, no. High forms if evil, pure evil. Okay. It was a man joining what? It was a man joining with that, which was his equal. No, if you're torturing me, there's no such thing as equality. Equity is out the window and could therefore share experiences. No, no, there's no such thing as sharing when you're being violated and ideas with him. No, you can't share ideas when you're damaging my soul permanently and leaving me with soul scars. In a way, he could not with a woman. Uh, no, 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 ha- no, no. This is the wrong language to use when it comes to people who have been forced to be slaves. Paterasty pedophilia was understood to be good and acceptable. No, 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 Hell, to, no, hell to the nah. Hell to the motherfucking no! Nah. Hell to the motherfucking no! Nah. Hell no! Hell no! Roman sexuality had a low view of womanhood. Uh, women were not generally held in high regard in Roman culture. Women were often seen as weak, physically and mentally. They were inferior to men. They're not inferior to men. It was just that the Roman Fucked up ass culture Solved that way And existed to serve the men As little more than slaves at times A woman's value was larger In her ability to bear children If she could not do so She was quickly cast off Fucked up Because lifespans were short And infant mortality high Women were often married off In their young teens Ew Child marriage is fucking disgusting Child marriage is evil Sick Perverted Dead Wrong and highly immoral, it should be illegal and abolished everywhere. To maximize the number of children that could bear... No, no, no. They were encouraging statutory rape back then. And people encourage it now. Sick Pervert, perverts that need to be locked up without parole. When it came to sexual morals, women were held to a very different standard than men. Where men were free to carry on L G B T Q plus sex, she says affairs. So I don't want to disrespect any community, and to commit adultery with prostitutes and concubines. You can I don't know if you can use the word adultery because um, in this culture, it's rape. The, adultery in Roman times, it, I call that rape. I, yes, I call that rape. He says, "Commit adultery with slaves, prostitutes, concubines." I say rape because if in a toxic masculinity culture, it can—do you really have a such thing as consent? Now I think about—I don't know if there was any such thing as a consensual sex back then. I may have to correct myself. I'm like, huh? How can you have consent in a dehumanization culture? How can you have equality and equity in a demonization culture? I may have to change my view on consent because the way what I'm reading makes me think. Yeah, I don't know if it was always too sad I don't think it was ever. I don't know if it was ever two sided. I'm starting to rethink. A woman, quote unquote, caught in adultery should be charged with a crime. Legal penalty for adultery allowed the husband to rape the male offender than if he desired to kill his wife. Under Augustus, it even became illegal for a man to forgive his wife. He was forced to divorce her. It is not enough to suggest that women were underappreciated in Roman culture. Don't you think? They were unappreciated in Roman culture. Underappreciated is the wrong language to use. Totally unappreciated. Children were totally unappreciated too. Slaves and processed concubines, totally unappreciated. They all were totally unappreciated. Underappreciated, that's not strong enough in condemnation. There are many instances where they were treated as second-class human beings slightly more honored than slaves. That, uh, that, 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 that's, you're still enslaving me, even if you so-called quasi-semi. I guess you're, you have a little more value in my perverted eyesight than a slave. But all these groups, sl- women, children... Prostitutes, concubines, and slaves were all treated as slaves, if you do your research. So, is there one group of slaves when you think about it? In this culture of cruelty? I don't know if anything was consensual back then. I'm still... And so, basically... I'ma just wrap up... Because y'all get the point... I don't believe in dumbing down... and You know, y'all... I'm not gonna treat y'all like you're stupid... Because you get the point... To sum it up... Rome was a culture of... Extreme... Sexual... Perversion... I'm only making... disses at the Roman males. Those are the only people I'm targeting. Everybody else is innocent. I'm talking about these Roman slimy pig motherfuckers. Those are the ones I'm talking about. So, I'm pretty much done. Um. I can't take it anymore. Y'all pretty much get the point. <laughs> um. Um. I had to read this because I felt like there was more that wasn't being said that should have been said. Um. I just. I I have to say that As I have been reading these articles, I was thinking about a conversation I had with a friend of mine who's like a sibling to me today. And this sibling of mine, friend of mine too, says that, you know, that when you do episodes like this, it really helps a lot of people. Um feel water in my eyes Tears haven't formed But I still feel the water I feel a watery Very exhausted Um Way about my eyes right now Um These are the things That need to be addressed Um I may have to ask a controversial question. I wonder: Was Jesus a victim of any kind of child abuse? Was Jesus sexually abused as a child? Was Jesus physically abused as a child? And I don't mean to be controversial, but because Jesus grew up in a region that was. It had a lot of Roman domination, and if Jesus was abused as an adult, according to history in the Bible, he was. Was that more of the same when he was a kid? Or. Did Mary and Joseph protect Jesus as a kid? Were they able to? And if they didn't, I wonder the Bible writers knew that. And if they knew that, why were they silent on it? That's what I ask because Jesus and the Romans do have a relationship. The Romans killed him. So I wonder, what was it like for Jesus to be a kid? I wonder, did the other adults that Jesus came in contact with contact with as a child? Did they protect him? Were they nasty to him? Did they they try to defile him? Did they try to rape him? Did they try to beat him up? I can't help but ask these questions because the more I study history involving the ancient cultures and ancient life and their dynamics impacting Jesus because he lived in that time, I I can't help but ask that question out loud. I mean, there's nothing wrong with intellectual toolboxes such as the Bible, because it's a book. Books are intellectual tools. You're going to have questions, even questions that are uncomfortable not to disparage the name of Jesus at the same time, I, this is my way of showing empathy for Jesus. I want to know what, how was he treated? Did this happen to him? And if it did, what was Mary and Joseph's response? And was Joseph still alive when it happened? Because after 12, it seems like he disappeared from the biblical scene. Okay, how did Mary deal with it? If it happened, I don't know. I can only speculate and ask questions. I'm lovingly speculating here. I'm lovingly interrogating here. I wonder, how did adults view Kid Jesus? Did Mary get a lot of grief from them because he was the sinless, flawless kid? Did other kids pick on Jesus and bully him? Was it both? Was it adults and kids picking on Jesus or trying to pick on him? I have no clue. But I think these questions, because based on what I've read in scripture, when they disrobed him and put on another set of clothing on him, they took off his clothes during, um, before he was, uh crucified. I I saw a part where they gambled for his clothes, they gambled for his lots and everything, and they just rubbed and put some on him. And then when I've read in Roman culture how some of the, well, a lot of the crucifixion victims were anally raped before um, they were crucified. Uh, it's possible that could have happened to Jesus. I don't know. But based on what I've read on crucifixion, I think that may have happened. So those are the questions I'm asking. And thank you for letting me share with you.